Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Apotheosis, part three. The SCP Foundation has drawn a line in the sand and initiated a war against the entities formerly known as humans. In spite of everything that has changed, they have decided to maintain their commitment to normal baseline humanity and to contain anything and anyone that could be considered anomalous. In the third and final part of the Apotheosis story, this war between the SCP Foundation and the anomalous humans affected by SCP-3396 will finally come to a climax. In the article SCP-3731, we're given a complete timeline of the war, as well as some fun glimpses at the type of weapons and tools the Foundation used to combat millions of super-powered humans. In the final tale, Thrive, we'll get to see the aftermath of the war, and although it won't provide every answer we might want, it will provide a conclusion. SCP-3731 is the designation for the sapient population of Earth, the entities formerly known as humans. I'll continue to refer to them as mutants throughout the story for simplicity's sake, but really these entities are far more common and normal than humans. The Foundation, despite their best efforts, failed to contain the spread of the 3396 infection. And by this point, every living human outside of a zone in the western United States has been converted. This orange zone, completely controlled by what's left of the Foundation, is their last bastion of normalcy amid a ruined world. This orange zone was formed as part of the Foundation's Alabaster Protocol, which involves shifting the Foundation's entire directive to handling this problem, obviously. All research personnel are now assigned to developing technological, paratechnological, and thomic countermeasures to the mutants, and a number of portable SCPs have been relocated to the Orange Zone, while most immovable objects have been either decommissioned, meaning destroyed, or otherwise rendered inaccessible. Foundation sites containing immovable Keter-class threats have been thomically warded and locked down, supported by automated defense systems to keep intruders away until the Foundation regains control of the situation. Additionally, any assets the Foundation has access to but avoided using because they would draw too much attention in normal circumstances, such as paratechnical weapons and vehicles, infantry augmentation equipment, and things like large, unpiloted combat drones are now being used. Finally, any rulings the Ethics Committee might make about treatment of the mutants is to be ignored, so the gloves are off. The Foundation has observed that, collectively, the mutant population displays higher rates of physical aggression, anti-establishmentarian tendencies, and other antisocial behavior compared to normal human beings. This, of course, isn't due to the mutations affecting people's brains directly, but 
rather what happens when you give the population of the world sudden superpowers and grotesque mutations. This has led to some communities forming amongst mutants, such as we saw with Monica in Old Vegas, but because of infighting and outside attacks, they have remained small. Additionally, some dangerous SCPs that have now broken containment, some of which have also been mutated, have caused a significant number of casualties amongst mutants. The Foundation's best guess is that the total number of living mutants currently is no more than 5% of the prior baseline human population, which still leaves hundreds of millions of superhumans. What's worse though is that it seems that these mutations have continually increased over time, giving mutants increasingly greater capabilities and forms. Apparently, Earth was not meant to handle this level of anomalous activity, and it is becoming exponentially more unstable, with earthquakes, fire spouts, new mountains and sinkholes popping up, dead zones incompatible with life appearing, and various types of animals falling from the sky occurring. Based on their current info, if nothing changes, the Earth will be rendered uninhabitable by 2024. Obviously, the Foundation is going to try and change things. That leads to our first section of the timeline of events that led up to this point. Things kicked off in October of 2018 when Foundation researchers stumbled upon SCP-3396 and became mutated. Two weeks later, the GOC and UIU became involved, and the three groups created a demilitarized neutral zone around 3396. Anomalous events began to be reported across the United States as the infection spreads, requiring the amnestization of over 70,000 civilians. It only took five weeks after this point for the infection to be present on every inhabited continent, with an estimated 0.8% of the global population affected. A mutant at an outdoor concert in London allows the crowd to fly by imitating a flapping motion with their arms forcing the Foundation to send in two MTFs to contain the situation. They found that all 314 people they contained had been infected during the event, and they had to amnesticize a total of around 9,000 civilians. Things were getting out of hand, but so far the Foundation was still handling it. Three weeks later, by the end of December, around 1.4% of the population was converted, and Foundation personnel trained in thaumaturgy are assigned to ward Foundation sites from infection. Three mutants in Paris use their abilities to rob an armored truck, and easily dispatch the Foundation agents sent in to respond, forcing an MTF to come in and neutralize them. 18 Foundation members and 29 civilians also died in this incident. By the start of February, the veil had been broken, as 2.5% of the global population were now mutants, and the Foundation simply couldn't amnesticize enough people, or even worry about keeping the veil intact at this point. Rioting breaks out across the globe, and the GOC authorizes lethal force against any and all mutants. The Foundation establishes a new headquarters in the evacuated city of Phoenix, Arizona, the center of the Orange Zone. Through this process, they moved nearly 1.5 million civilians and managed to contain around 30,000 mutants, creating a new containment area to hold them. Exponential growth really kicks in here, and within two months, over 11% of the global population is infected, and the majority of governments cease to function. 
The O5 Council passes a mandate allowing anomalous methods in the containment of the mutants, including reverse engineering of paratechnology, use of necrothaumaturgy, or necromancy as it were, and collusion with extra-dimensional entities. Yes, the Foundation are desperate enough at this point to make a deal with some sort of cosmic creature, whether that would be something like the Scarlet King or something else. This would explain why they could keep up with the mutants. Not that it does a whole lot of good, because another two months go by and nearly 40% of the world is infected, the GOC has fallen apart completely, and one of the O5s becomes a mutant as well. By August 1st, the number's up to 56%, and a notable event occurs in the city of Jaipur in India, when an infant becomes infected and begins consuming nearby people and objects, incorporating them into its body and continuing to grow. The Foundation completely fails here, and it requires the assistance of around 100 other mutants to terminate the massive baby, leading to the deaths of 206 Foundation members and an estimated 2.4 million civilians. Let's take a small break from the timeline of events to look at some of the weapons the Foundation brought out to wage war against an army of mutants, potentially with assistance by extra-dimensional entities. The controlled innervation gauntlets are an attachment for the Foundation's infantry combat exoskeletons that deliver weaponized thaumic invocations in close quarters combat. These invocations cause the target's skeleton to combust by default, which is impressive, and the gauntlets can be loaded with more specialized invocations if needed. The Spectral Emulsion Ordinance is a piece of equipment for infantry that works like a flamethrower, but expels weaponized ghosts and may cause residual haunting, which is not a sentence I'd ever thought I'd say. The Thaumic Resonance Oscillator is a bit more heavy-duty, and is attached to vehicles for large-scale engagements. It works by using tuned etheric waves to stimulate blue matter growths inside of mutants, causing uncontrolled bursts of anomalous activity. This activity is obviously pretty unpredictable, so it's recommended to be used from a safe distance only, but can merely incapacitate instead of kill at lower frequencies. Moving up, we have the Thano-Penetrating Aperture Mortar, a rather unique form of long-range artillery that creates large holes on surfaces and causes groups of elongated, multi-jointed human limbs to emerge from said holes. These arms will detect any sapient organism nearby and pull them down inside of the hole, after which the holes will demanifest, allowing long-range dispatching of mutants while minimizing damage to cities. Autonomous neutralization drones are AI-equipped robotic aircraft, resembling WASPs, that travel in swarms to track and neutralize mutants. They are programmed to tunnel into the bodies of mutants and disrupt internal matter formations, with around 2% of mutants surviving this process, who can then be taken in as Foundation personnel after recovery. Finally, we have the Geometric Destabilization Artillery aircraft-mounted missiles that cause spatial distortions in an area that are incompatible with life, such as surfaces folding into themselves or objects occupying the same space at the same time. These weapons are recommended only for use against mutants that have transformed into large, non-human forms, 
as it renders the area of effect permanently uninhabitable due to redistributing the circulatory system of anyone that enters. So, with all this incredible weaponry, surely the Foundation stands a much better chance against the mutant hordes. Unfortunately, while they may have helped to slow the spread, they certainly didn't stop it. By the end of August of 2019, 10 months after this all started, 77% of the world's population has been converted, and the Foundation has moved all of their personnel and remaining resources to the Orange Zone. The R&D team begins working on a new procedure to neutralize the mutations in an individual and revert them back to human. The process is dubbed Lilac, and involves a combination of magic, anomalous medical interventions, and radical surgery. A month later, the number is up to 89%, and the Foundation sets out to reclaim the city of Tucson, Arizona from mutant control, utilizing their new weaponry. The Foundation succeeds, losing only 39 personnel in the process, killing off 842 mutants and capturing over 12,000 of them. The O5s approved the usage of Procedure 01 Lilac on the contained mutants, which proves to have a survival rate of 0.01%, so there's some room for improvement. October 2019, one year after the start. The entirety of the human population outside of the Foundation's orange zone has been converted. O5-1 is lost during the destruction of a Foundation site as the entire site and surrounding landscape is launched into space by a number of mutants. Two weeks later, the Foundation continues to expand their orange zone, reclaiming the city of El Paso in Texas, losing 124 Foundation personnel, killing off 599 mutants, and capturing nearly 17,000. The lilac process has moved on to its fifth iteration, now with a 6.1% survival rate. A week later, they recapture Albuquerque, containing another 13,000 mutants. On February 6th, the battle at 05-2's safe house occurs that we looked at last time, with three Foundation casualties and 43 mutant casualties. March 8th, another O5 becomes infected, and proceeds to send a mass text and email to all Foundation personnel simultaneously, simply reading, Thrive, before disappearing. Reconnaissance into the city of Santa Fe reveals that the entire city has become a dense forest of humanoid trees and anomalous fauna. The Foundation deems the city irreclaimable, and proceeds to bomb it instead. As March continues, the Foundation is beginning to run real short of supplies to keep containing all of these mutants, and one provisional containment area is forced to ration electricity and limit the usage of air conditioning. After two days, 37 mutants die of heat stroke, and the remaining mutants riot, destroying the containment area and releasing around 14,000 mutants back into the wild. Towards the end of April, the reclamation of Las Vegas commences which we read about back at the start of all this. The Foundation ends up losing that battle, pretty badly as it turns out, with over 5,000 casualties, capturing zero mutants, and only managing to kill an estimated 950 of them. June 4th, another containment area is lost by a mutant attack, resulting in the breach of over 17,000 mutants. 
mid-July. Foundation Reconnaissance reports that a number of mutant communities have cropped up, most of them generally attempting to imitate human society, which is not really a surprise to anyone since they're still pretty human. This statement, though, is pretty indicative of how detached the Foundation has become from recognizing these people as anything but deranged anomalies, although they are still working to neutralize the mutations to save people. By this point, the accumulation of anomalous activity is starting to become noticeable on a geological scale, and strange weather events such as hails of biting skulls and sentient lightning storms are making travel and construction hazardous. By September, resources are getting even thinner, and food and water shortages at a containment area result in over 400 mutant deaths within a week. The director of the containment area makes the unauthorized decision to shut down the operation, releasing 11,000 mutants. In other words, the Foundation leaders would rather these mutants starve in containment than be released. Some time ticks by, and in January of 2021, a new MTF is formed, consisting of mutants that remained loyal to the Foundation after conversion. The Foundation doesn't mind slaughtering these people, but they're not above using them as weapons either. The world outside of the Orange Zone is becoming increasingly dangerous to travel through, as the mutations have affected practically every plant and animal around. By March, we learn that the Foundation's work has done some good and the world will still be hospitable to life in 2024, unlike their prior projection. But now that number has moved to 2027 instead. A year and a half goes by with little notable events, until it's revealed that a number of Foundation personnel have been secretly aiding and abetting the Serpent's Hand for at least the last two years. We heard from one of these individuals... Tilda Moose last time when discussing the potential cost these powers would take from humanity. In July of the year 2023, the city of Tucson is overrun by mutants, and an MTF is killed in action after several mutants hijack some giant automated combat drones and reprogram them. January of 2024, the tree insect entity that started all of this, SCP-3396, suddenly begins ascending into the upper atmosphere, and all Foundation Thaumic scanning equipment worldwide simultaneously reads a single word, Thrive. A sudden spike of anomalous activity across the globe accelerates the timeline of Earth's inhospitality back to April of 2024. One month later, in February, the three remaining O5 Council members vote to authorize the use of the 99th iteration of Procedure Lilac, with two voting in favor and one opposed. Procedure 99 Lilac is very different than the first, and the plan is to use Thaumobaric Stratosphere Cluster Charge Munitions and detonate them over each of the planet's remaining landmasses. This will lead to creating a destructive endothomic reaction on a planetary scale, violently rejecting all blue matter formations and attached physical tissues from every mutant outside of the orange zone. This of course means the death of every single uncontained mutant, but the planet will, in theory, be saved. In this event, what the Foundation dubs an XK-class Foundation apotheosis scenario 
The only remnants of humanity that will exist will be in Foundation containment. Afterwards, the Foundation will attempt to go back to business to help recontain any other anomalies, and civilization will begin to regrow out from the Orange Zone. Former mutants that survived prior lilac procedures will form the basis of this new population. Since I know you're wondering why they wouldn't just use SCP-2000 to repopulate the Earth, the author says that the biomatter reserves held within SCP-2000 that are used to create humans were also infected with blue matter, and would therefore be purged as well. It's possible they could use it down the line again, but it's not viable immediately. The Foundation admits that being the deliberate cause of such an XK-class scenario is their ultimate failure, but they will use the opportunity to start clean and to make a better world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's find out how that all goes, shall we? We'll get to the aftermath of that decision in a little bit, but the tale Thrive starts out in the midst of the failing war against the remaining mutants during the Foundation's reclamation of Tucson. An MTF armed in exoskeletons marches through the city, one of the members equipped with a ghost thrower, powered by a separate human heart. They attempt to announce to the mutants that they still have a chance to cooperate, but they are swiftly attacked by a woman covered in tiger fur with bone spears jutting out of her body. One of the team utilizes a rifle that causes lightning bolts to strike the affected target, and the rest unload with their various weaponry. The one with the ghost thrower lets loose with a sound like a chainsaw cutting through desperate wails as a faint blue light swirling with pained faces washes over the enemy. One of the targets, a mutant that appears as a person-shaped hole in space, gets ripped apart by the spectral emulsions until blackened bones become visible and they crumble apart. The ghost thrower gets sweeped over a number of mutants, one that appears as a dense cloud of birds, one as a tall man in a suit with a knot of gears where his head should have been, one that was a many-armed beast seemingly made out of plush, and three that just looked normal. The ghost successfully devoured all of them. Another member of the team fires a silent belt-fed machine gun that causes gnashing mouths to appear wherever it's pointed, devouring targets from the inside. Next, we catch back up with Armando, who is currently seated on a floating web of interlinked arms among the clouds, held aloft by a large bundle of helium-filled arms. He comes up here to reflect, while leaving some arms down below to monitor for any danger. He thinks back to when he first discovered his anomalous trait, when he was 15 and got his arms stuck in a derelict garage that he had been poking around in. A large pile of assorted junk had collapsed on top of him, trapping and breaking his arm. He tried to free himself, hoping that he could just 
put things back the way they were and maybe no one would get mad. As he yanked his arm out, of course, it disconnected, and Armando vomited as a new arm grew out of the stump, one a different skin tone than his own. He quickly grabbed a bag filled with food, toys, and a picture of his family, and ran away. He rejected his arms at first, pulling them off, crushing them, hacking at them, because they felt foreign and invasive. At the start, he couldn't even control them, and barely felt anything through them. He of course also grew arms that weren't human, made of metal or popcorn or wood. Through time and some practice though, he became more accustomed to them, and when he eventually got two arms with similar skin tone to the rest of him, he buried the rest and tried to live normally. He ended up falling in with a bad group that welcomed his anomalous power, but he felt like just another tool in their toolbox. During a deal involving some anomalous goods, the deal went south, and as Armando tried to flee from the crime scene, he got picked up by a group of agents in black tactical gear who shoved him into a van, after which he woke up in the care of the SCP Foundation. At one point he actually managed to break free from containment by fighting his way out, but he lost control of his arms and ended up killing an innocent. He realized that he could never truly be free as he was, and so he let them take him back. Partway into the Apotheosis timeline, the SCP facility where Armando was held was being evacuated, and while being transported to the Orange Zone, the convoy was attacked by mutants. The wall of Armando's cell sparkled and turned to salt before being blown away by the breeze, and Armando was greeted by a four-eyed woman. She asked him if he was coming with them, or if he wanted them to drop him back off at the site. Armando quickly accepted, and was converted, describing it as like a baptism. He says that whatever force was moving his arms beforehand was gone now, replaced by this new power. Armando watches as SCP-3396 ascends into the sky, and for the first time, he feels truly free. Fast forward again to when the Foundation unleashes their greatest weapon imaginable. Tilda Moose stands in an area that used to be Chicago, but is now only a desert composed of obsidian. She and others around her begin to rise into the air, half because of their own will, and half because of the force from above them, SCP-3396. She only dimly feels the impact of the Foundation's missiles as her physical body gets torn apart, and she calls the Foundation's actions pathetic. The mutants were now far beyond humanity, and the Foundation had really only harmed themselves. As they ascended into the sky, she wondered if they would be enslaved to this entity, or if their personal identities would be stripped away as they are fused together. She wondered, as she did before, what the cost of this all would be. Then suddenly she understood that this benefit had been determined long, long ago by whatever forces had created humanity in the first place. As for who exactly that was, Tilda was sure she would find out eventually, as she had all the time in the multiverse now. 05-8 looks out across the burning Pacific Ocean as this happens, and smiles sadly. 
He looks up and sees the mutants hovering in space and looking down at him, and he is very proud that so many of them had survived. It seems that 05-8 is certainly not a normal human himself, as he had spent many thousands of years looking after humanity and watching us grow as a species. He admits that he had been more partial to the ocean-going species, but they had turned out to be less intelligent than the primates. As he looks out at the devastation, though, he wonders if they weren't actually way more intelligent. In time, he had grown to love humans, though, bearing their sorrows on his shoulders and watching as they built great cities. He had seen promise in the Foundation's goals since their inception, but was concerned that they might be a tad zealous. Ultimately, they were a necessary requirement for human life to go on, and although he could have done the job entirely himself if he put his back into it, he appreciated the help. He instead chose to watch them operate from the inside, so that he could steer them in the right direction. He realizes that he completely failed in that pursuit, but it doesn't matter anymore. For the first time, humanity was truly free, and he could finally unburden himself from the weight he's been carrying for so long. As he does, he hears the horrifying unified roar of thousands of cosmic abominations that suddenly became aware of Earth's existence. This entity had been keeping our planet hidden for millennia to protect us, but now that protection was removed because humanity had evolved. The horde of abominations begin tearing through space towards Earth, intent on consuming it as part of a long line of devoured planets. A woman appears next to the O5, asking him if this is how he wants to play it. The O5 considered her to be the single most violent, barbaric, and disgusting thing that he was aware of, and she was also his sister. Who these entities are doesn't really matter, as they are both supremely powerful, and it seems that one of them has been protecting us from the other. She's surprised at his sudden laxity, but he says that he has no reason to keep holding her back, because there are no more people for her to enslave and devour. He tells her that she's free to gnaw on the entire cosmos if she wishes, but he warns her that there are some rather disagreeable entities on the way here, and they'll kill them both. The woman wonders what the O5 will do now that there are no more humans to protect, jokingly asking him if he'll guard the rocks now. He says that he might actually do that, because he has no other purpose. His purpose in life has been defined by humanity, and he contains their sorrow, their pain, their endurance, and their memory. He stopped them from being animals, taught them, and protected them. He mentions that their elder brother has decided that humanity's time has finally come, and they don't need him anymore. Instead, he's going to do what he's always done, endure, and he will face the horde of abominations swiftly coming for the Earth. He summons a colossal anchor that twists nearby space with its sheer cosmic mass and extinguishes every fire in a hundred mile radius as it suddenly appears. He hefts it onto his shoulder and asks his sister if she'll join him. The woman, containing the hunger, lust, ferocity, and rage of what had used to be humanity, smiles 
and says that just this once, she will. She disappears as an ocean of flesh explodes out from beneath the bedrock of North America, comprised of the rotting, shrieking corpses from thousands of years. The former Foundation Overseer armors himself in plates of the purest stone, hewn from the agony and valor of Earth's most sacred and worthy dead. He gathers what remains of the planet's oceans and ascends into the sky as the eternal guardian of the soul of humanity. And together, the two waged their final war. Another overseer, O5-1, steps out from his bunker with a much different attitude, one of rage and grief at the Foundation's failure. They had protected humanity for so long because it was the only thing he'd ever loved for the last 2,000 years, but now he was alone. He lets out a roar of frustration at the blue star in the sky that is SCP-3396. He then says to himself that he'd do it all over again a thousand times, even if he knew that they would still fail. He is bitter about what humanity has chosen, betraying the foundation and normalcy by going along with an entity that is nothing more than a mockery of true life. He says that had humanity stood with the foundation rather than against them, they could have defeated this anomalous threat and endured as they've always endured. Instead, they were seduced by power, and although they've become akin to gods now, he says that they have become less than human, not more. The individual known as Nobody appears, implied to be the Foundation's administrator, and O5-1 asks him why he abandoned the Foundation when they needed him more than ever. The administrator simply says that it wasn't the greater good anymore, and that's that. Finally, let's catch back up with Monica, who has now transcended to become a massive floating entity covered in towering metal spires, each the size of a small city. The towers contain enough power to vaporize entire solar systems, and with one thought she could reduce light years of space to a hot slurry of base particles. Her power was infinite in the truest sense of the word, and nestled in the center of this massive assembly of endlessly destructive engines was the form of a human woman. Monica kept this form here as a sense of nostalgia of what she used to be, as she had now lost her humanity completely. She had kept her memories, and still knew herself as Monica, and even though she had devoured the internet and was aware of all human knowledge, she still couldn't forget who she was. And she didn't want to. She is aware of other survivors near her, such as Dozer and his engineers, who had fused together into one form, a monolithic citadel with miles of carvings of people and structures. Ogre and someone named Violet had married and woven their essences together, now existing as a great menagerie of plants and animals across dozens of floating islands. On the largest island were two thrones where they sat, looking out upon the lives they had saved with pride and affection. Norman was now a nameless moon-sized mass of flesh amidst a sea of luminous blue-green water. Great leviathan shapes moved under the waves, creatures created by Norman, and his mind unreeled for light years in all directions, hunting for minds to discover and learn from. 
There were thousands of entities like these, each one an expression of a human mind let loose from the constraints of possibility. Below them, the earth burned and shuddered, with little life remaining from the Foundation's destructive capabilities. The continents had cracked, the seas had boiled, and all the while the entity responsible for all this had simply carried on. The tree it had been had grown until its tendrils had overtaken much of the western U.S., and once the world began to burn, it ascended into the sky, indifferent to the suffering and destruction. Now it simply hovered amongst the changed humans, simultaneously comforting and terrifying. Monica reflects on the SCP Foundation, a group she never had much love for, but she understands now that they had served a purpose in protecting humanity. She knows that she would not exist if not for their work throughout history, but she thinks that it's fitting now that they would die upon finally being rendered obsolete. She had gone to some of the Foundation members that still remained before she ascended, and tried to convince them to see reason. Surely the definition of anomalous no longer mattered at this point, and it would be better to let outdated principles and prejudices go in the face of eternity. Instead, they had spat in her face, because they would rather normalcy be absolute than live one more day sharing a planet with such monsters. The changed humans no longer needed Earth, though, as the rest of the cosmos contained only potential, and they would go out there and thrive. Monica sheds one final tear for those that had fallen to ignorance and pride and pointless strife, a droplet of molten metal drifting through space. Then she signals to her people, and together they leave the Earth behind. Alone in its orbit, the entity responsible for all this watched and was pleased, because it had known the potential of humanity, and now it was realized. It also knew that this full potential would be needed to withstand what they would encounter in the cosmos. So that's it for Apotheosis, a tale in which the abnormal becomes the new normal, the Foundation burns the world to cinders in a rage against the betrayal of humanity, and a new collection of gods sets out to explore the universe. As usual, my summarizations tend to remove a lot of the poetic writing that makes stories like this enjoyable to read, leaving us largely with the facts. The Apotheosis canon is a very different take on the SCP universe, and while there can be many arguments about how exactly a scenario like this would play out, this is the story the authors wanted to tell. This isn't the first of its kind to affect humanity on such a wide scale, nor is it the first where the SCP Foundation fails in their goals, but it is a unique blend of comic book style action, SCP oddities, and philosophical concepts. It's a rare instance where the Earth burning to cinders and the SCP Foundation completely failing isn't really a bad ending. And that's pretty interesting. <laughs> 